And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Coach Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Shrine and Gary K. Wolf on the Coaching Podcast. I know, you sound exactly, you sound more tired than I am because you've been away longer than I have. You think that's what it is? I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just 311 episodes, Gary. I don't know. Um, oh, well, we, we, should, we should apologize to our friends and our, our listeners for not having had an episode, but it's been a very busy August. And by the time they hear this, by the time uh, this goes out, everyone will have heard the major podcast we did live at Worldcon with Walter John Williams and... Kelly Robson. That's correct. Yeah, it's just gone out live to the world even as we speak. So it's the morning of uh, episode 311 going out. So tell me, Gary, tell me about your Worldcon. We're just back. We've been off the air since the 1st of July, actually. So it's nearly two full months that we've been off the air. We've not done that before. So, I mean, and largely through kind of neglect and travel. So how you been? What's been up? My sense was that this was one of the better world cons I've been to. I mean, as, uh, I have the same sense I have everywhere. I didn't spend nearly as much time in Europe as you did. But when you're in a <clears throat> large hotel next to a large conference center, after a while you begin to lose track of the fact that you're – what country you're in. So I didn't see – certainly the, the programming I saw was very well organized, the um, – uh, the smoothness of the operation, the size of the crowd, which seems to be very well managed as far as I could tell. Uh, I understood, although I was not there, that there was a four-hour line for George Martin signatures, but if George Martin goes to the corner bakery, he'll have a four-hour line, so that's not unusual. (laughs) Well, I guess there's some truth to that, though. I would say probably these days he probably sends, you know, a helper to go and do that. We should acknowledge that the Hugo Awards were presented at Worldcon 75 in Helsinki, Finland. Uh, and our hats off to all of the, of the winners, but probably most especially to our fellow fan cast, uh, Lady Business, where Claire, Ira, Jody, KJ, Renee, and Susan, and Renee's been on our podcast as a guest, won the Hugo. So congratulations to them. Uh, and, of course, to everybody else, a fine set of winners. So that was great. Were you uh, at all surprised at the uh, winners? No, not really. Well, just, uh, yes, I was a little. I mean, you know how it is. Every year there's something, someone else that you would have picked or something different you would have done because it's your vote as opposed to somebody else's and it's your taste as opposed to somebody else's. I had thought that maybe Nina Allen or Alyssa Wong might have had a shot in Novelette. But I'm delighted that Ursula Vronin won for the Tomato Thief, thief, if only because she gave the best Hugo acceptance speech I've heard in years. That possibly is, and it's one of the things that I've I've, I've only met her very briefly. But it was, of course, for people who did not read about it, was completely irrelevant to the Hugo Awards and had to do with whale feces in the bottom of the ocean creating new life or something along those lines. But... Uh, it was. It was absolutely brilliant, and I thought Karen Lord did a extremely gracious job of, uh, of of monitoring the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I think looking down the list of winners, only one of my first choices got up, but that's okay. Um, I, I, you know, I was happy. I, I see that the series award was both presented and has been carried forward. Um, mm. I had hoped at least because she was in her second year of eligibility, and because I think she's terrific, that our 
our podcast guest, uh, Kelly Robson, would have picked up the John W. Campbell. But I don't doubt that there will be many awards in her future. So, yeah. And I, I have to. I'm hmm, sorry. Uh, no, I, I, I agree completely. And, you know, there were, I don't know if any of my choices won, but uh, I didn't sense any disappointment among the actual winners that I did see. No, not at all, no. I didn't think there really were. I think everybody um, seemed happy with the, the overall results. I mean, look, there's always going to be individual quibbles, Gary, you know, uh, and I understand and I respect that as I know that you do. But, um, you know, uh, at the end of the day, it, it, you know, the people who win, win, and that's all you can do, right? So, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. Yeah, and I think what's uh, what's crucial this year is every year there are going to be disagreements. There are going to be there were some of my favorite works that didn't win that were on the finalist list, but there wasn't at this this year. There didn't seem to be any sense of ideology being part of this discussion at all. Um, oh, I, mean, I, I think that's probably a bit optimistic, Gary. I don't think that's well, true at all. I, I don't think that's I, remotely true. Really? Yeah, I think we're deep in the bowels of, of uh, uh, political voting. But that's okay. It's a phase we're passing through. There's something to be said for that. But political voting, when there are 17 factions, is not that much different from normal voting. Political oh, sure. voting, when there is one insurgent faction, yeah. becomes an us-against-them sort of thing. There was not that this year, I didn't No, know. no, it wasn't. And it's not to say that that political voting in any sense produced the wrong set of results. Uh, I think the set of results are fine. Um, I would have picked different book books. It's like next year I would pick different books than the ones that win. I doubt that my first choices in 2018 out of the books that come out in 2017 will be will win. But that's okay. That, that's always the way of popular vote awards, and you can't really complain too much about it. No, and, and, and part of what you're doing in voting for the awards... Uh, and I vote for the awards knowing perfectly well that most of my votes are not going to win the award. But it's important to give support uh, to the people who are who are nominated. And it's important even more so to actually make nominations earlier in the year. Absolutely. And in fact, that's one of the lamentable uh, processes that we're all about to begin. Those of us you know, behind the scenes, as we say every year, I mean, I was saying on social media and interacting with a few of my our, our colleagues, Gardner Dozwan, if you've got James Bradley about the fact that it really is best of the year time already, even though it's only the first week of September. You know, because we've got to start making those lists that cover the first three quarters of the year. We've got to start thinking about uh, who's going to take part in our recommended reading process. I've got to start finalizing the reading for my year's best because I've got to deliver that in the middle of December this year. So, you know, all in all, it, 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 it's that odd time of the year where you're both still caught up in the in, in the year at hand but beginning to look back already at the year that was you know otherwise all of those nice people are probably shaking their heads listening to the podcast wouldn't have recommended lists for december when they go shopping for christmas presents well but that's part of the way the science fiction year works i mean in, in a sense the hugo awards more than any other the the world con in general but the hugo awards in particular mark the end of one year and the beginning of another. The World Fantasy Awards don't really do that. Uh, no other awards do that. But essentially, 2000, uh, when the Hugo Awards have been given out, that means that 2016 is over, 2017 is in process, and 
and what we're worrying about are the lists that will be recommending people for 2018. So, uh, so yeah, it, it does feel like the beginning of the year. It's uh, the, the first day of what they call uh, meteorological fall, September 1st, September 2nd, you are. Uh, and so it does, it, it is a seasonal thing, like the Broadway theater season, like the new season of fall movies, the new season of fall TV, the season of fall books. It's the science fiction calendar pretty much follows the general cultural calendar that begins in September. Absolutely. I mean, I will sort of take a step back to, to something you were talking about a moment ago as well and say that I am deeply heartened by the way Worldcon is evolving. For a, for a significant period of time, it wasn't my first convention of choice. I liked it, but I didn't love it. I was much more a world fantasy attendee. I think that the two European Worldcons of the last three or four years, LunCon and now uh, Worldcon 75, have really broadened the, the community that, that we experience when we go to Worldcon. I think it's unfortunate that you don't see them as much at, at an American Worldcon because of the expense. You know, the Europeans can't afford to travel as much it would appear on, on, on mass. But you seem to get a younger, uh, com, you know, community at World, at well, European Worldcon. You seem to, you obviously get a more multilingual, multicultural, uh, community. And I think that benefits. I mean, what struck me the most when I walked into the dealer's room, for example, was that most of the fiction was not in English, which is actually really heartening to see to see that sort of breadth of material. And there's a strong presence from China, as you'd be aware as well, obviously kicked off by the, the hard work that Ken Liu and uh, Clark's World and Tor.com have done and everybody else uh, promoting some, uh, Chinese science fiction, and now that's getting reflected. And I think it's enormously positive that even though we return to the United States for San Jose, which is great, and San Jose I think is going to be a terrific Worldcon, it's also, I think, going to be the Worldcon where we get to celebrate Locus's 50th anniversary, and that's going to be a big deal. But we also settled on the fact that we're all going back to Europe in 2019 for the Dublin Worldcon, which is incredibly exciting for me, at least. I mean, I'm from Belfast, and I haven't been back to Ireland since 1993. And I can only imagine that adding Guinness and bad lighting can only help to Worldcon. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. You know, I think these are good times for those sort of th th those events, and getting pulled into Europe at this time is a a good thing. No, I think it's, uh, the the distri distribution of uh, world cons seems to be healthier than it has been in the past, and certainly certainly more multicultural. But I, I, I think I, I hope Dublin does well. I hope that people didn't spend so much money on the trip to Helsinki, which was not an inexpensive trip, and it's not an inexpensive city. Um, that it, it it may not draw this kind of crowd again. Why do you think this was almost a record world con? Well, first of all, I'm going to address the expense issue for a second. I can and say that from my perspective, it costs just about as much as going to an American world con. So I'm, I'm dollar blind when it comes to that. I'm, well, you're, yeah, you're in an unusual circumstance. Um, why do I think that it, it was the convention that it was? Why do I think it was a successful? Why do I think so many people came? I think because LunCon was a huge success. I think lots and lots of people came from Europe. They experienced their first Worldcon. They promoted it to other people throughout Europe. And those people came. And I think the fact that you add that to that, a significant 
part of the standard Worldcon attending audience who are willing to go as well, and that led to a near record size turnout. I mean, also, I mean, complete hats off to Worldcon Set 75, Yuka and his team and everybody else. They had a consistent, well-run, well-organized, well-promoted event that people could have, feel confidence in investing in a membership, in flights and hotels, because they knew that all of the core things felt like they were in place. You had a venue, you had policies, you know, you had accessibility policies, you had codes of conduct, and they were all done early and they were all promoted well. And everything just seemed, from the outside, to go out off like, like clockwork. The only real significant issue I saw or heard with Worldcon 75 was that nobody really seemed to have sufficiently anticipated the fact that within Helsinki itself, a lot of people tend to only decide to go to things at the last moment. And so they had these huge queues, which I've never seen before, for um, day memberships. Not, not actually out, I don't even mean outside the rooms, which of course I've also rarely ever seen, though it was a standard thing at this convention. But also, I mean, like, if you, I think the doors opened at 9 o'clock or 9.30, and if you were downstairs and you looked, there was a queue of 150, 200 people waiting to buy the limited availability day memberships to get in. And so, they hmm? apparently sold out the day memberships every day. Every single day. And they sold them out every single day because there were people who were making the decision right then to go. I think they probably could have had more people, frankly, and they could have had a bigger venue. Uh, what The only thing that concerns me at all, and it may not be accurate, is that apparently there is the chance that the Dublin Worldcon may have limited memberships, actual restricted memberships for the first time, because I believe that their facility may only hold 5,000 people or so. Yeah, I think that's, I've heard that as a possibility. I mean, I, I should confirm that this is one of those things where I'm going to flag very clearly on the podcast. This is what I heard as a rumor. But I would strongly, strongly advise anyone listening who's thinking about going to Dublin, sign up now. I mean, the worst thing you do is you end up buying it early, help support the convention and get a cheaper rate, right? Uh, and the best thing is you end up not missing out on what could be another fabulous convention. Because the other thing that's pretty clear is we're now on a path for at least the next half a decade or more of being outside the United States quite a lot. You know, we're going to be in, um, we're going to be in Dublin in 2019. We're probably going to go to New Zealand in 2020. There are strong rumors of Paris, of China, of Australia, whatever, wherever else. So there's a lot, a lot of different options that are coming up. And I think you want to be a part of that. And yeah, see the continuing rejuvenation of the, of if you like what I'm now going to call the post puppy Hugo's. Well, I was going to ask: Do you think that the uh, kind of sense of mission or sense of urgency that was generated among the community by the whole puppy thing had has helped unite the community in a way it might not have been before? It seemed to me that that uh, that created a, an enormous sense of, for lack of a better term loyalty to science fiction than I'd seen expressed before for several years. I think there may be truth to that. I could really believe it. I I felt more energized and protective of my community and of our awards than I had in the past for a long time. And I have experienced that when I talk to other people. And I and if it doesn't, you know, that, that's a good thing. I also have to say that there's very little I credit the puppy movement to, and they still get odd results on here. But if one of the things that this whole affair 
ends up having done is to energize people to be more involved and to increase the variety of work that ends up on ballots, then that's a good thing, I think. Well, that's my point. I, I think there's more, I sense more involvement, certainly, as you mentioned, the more multicultural involvement, more different perspectives. Um, there is a sense that the uh, that we don't know what the Hugos will look like in two, three, or five years. And one of the reasons, as you suggested, one of the reasons I never enjoyed world cons is that they were very much too large for me. Uh, and they were very much, when I started going to them, and I can't even remember a lot, the first one I went to would have been here in Chicago long ago, simply because it was here. Um, I wanted to see my friends, which I usually do. But there was a sense of sameness year after year that the uh, world cons became bloated versions of the world cons from the 50s and 60s and 70s, possibly. But it was the same crew, the same, not quite the same people being nominated. I have a feeling that the sense, uh, I have a sense that the field has exploded in terms of inclusiveness in the last five or ten years. Uh, and I, I suspect that does irritate some old timers who wanted to see the Hugo Awards, who want to see the Hugo Awards the way they were in 1975. Uh, I think for most of us, it's a very exciting development, though. I think it is. I think it's been a very exciting time. I, I did have some conversations, particularly after the convention, because after I left Helsinki and had traveled around, I went back to the United Kingdom and spent some time in London and talked to some friends. And I think that there is a process that is ongoing at the moment where we're working through including a lot more people and valuing their perspectives. And I think that's critical. And you've talked about it in your view about what's happening in the field. But that there's also this feeling that there are a lot of other significant issues that the field is not fully engaged with yet because it's still processing this. And, you know, we won't have fully processed it until it's fully, you know, we are fully inclusive. But there is an element of, you know, all these other issues. What else is next? How do we bring all the other things into science fiction? And what role does older science fiction now have to play? I mean, we've talked often about the idea that you should read things or you shouldn't read things or whatever else. And setting that aside as a thing, there's still an element of, you know, do you need to have read some things? I mean, I was talking to a mutual friend of the podcast, Jeff Ryman, about his experience running workshops. And he said, you know, he said people, you know, basically rewrite or give him short stories that are basically The Handmaid's Tale. But they've never read The Handmaid's Tale, so they're completely unaware of the story. They've, they have happened to parallel evolve it to some degree. And, you know, there's that question of how much familiarity with the history of the field people need to have. And I don't have a concrete answer to that one, not least because I completely acknowledge that the, the, what's seen as being the history of the field is a heavily gendered, heavily race-based, uh, heavily cultured um, history. So there's a broader picture to tell and a broader picture to uncover, but there's still those texts to, to, to sort of deal with well, as well. That, yeah, that, that, that also involves a bias about science fiction writing in general, that it consists of nothing but original ideas. Uh, and there, there are a lot of... I've, I've read some fairly uh, impressive models that could be accused of having uh, dealt with very old themes in science fiction. But uh, and, and you're right. If you, if you rewrite The Handmaid's Tale, somebody should tell you you've done that, and then you should do something else. It doesn't necessarily mean that you need to read The Handmaid's Tale and everything else before you write. Uh, I'll give you an example of um, 
somebody who's who's well, actually going to be on our podcast, Donnelly Lewis, has a terrific novel, Autonomous. And it deals with essentially a robot learning to be human. That's got to be one of the oldest themes in science fiction. It's, it's, not, that's, it's one of the themes in the novel, which is more complex and has other major themes and is very well thought out in terms of its future. But that basic theme uh, goes back to stories like uh, Roger Zelazny's For a Breath I Carry and Brian Aldous's Who Can Replace a Man. It goes all the way back to R.U.R. So you don't have to have an original idea, but the way that she treats it and uses really contemporary kinds of artificial intelligence research in it keeps it alive. Uh, I don't know whether Annalie had read any of these classic robots wanting to be human stories before or not, but uh, if she had, she managed to do a variation on them, which was creative and original, and if she hadn't, it didn't bother me much. Yeah, yeah. This all sort of segues into something else that you and I were chatting about earlier in the week, because as a great shock to everybody on the podcast, who listens to the podcast, we do talk at other times. And we were talking about something raised by our good friend Theodora Goss, who posted to Facebook he should read. I think the exact question was, if you were to create a list of essential fantasy novels for writers who wanted to write fantasy, what would you put on it? And I know you and I had a a different response to this. I think you were troubled by the question more than engaged by it. I don't know if I was troubled by the question. It seems to me that that question, which has frequently been asked about science fiction, for example, uh, then you're talking about a kind of narrow field compared to fantasy. Uh, If you're talking about writing hard-boiled mystery stories, yes, you should obviously read Raymond Chandler and, and, and Dashiell Hammett and, and, and Robert Parker and Ross MacDonald and that sort of thing. Fantasy has so many different uh, funnels leading into it that I don't know if somebody who wants to write um, a, a fairly gentle Peter Beagle kind of fantasy needs to read all of Tolkien to do that. I don't know if somebody who wants to write something really oddball to use a very not very critical term, like say Jonathan Carroll, do you, do you understand how to write a Jonathan Carroll story by reading Fritz Leiber? Uh, it seems to me you have to focus a little bit more than just saying fantasy. See, what I think is that's an almost completely unhelpful response. And I think it's overthinking it greatly. I think sometimes you're just talking about a general survey list. And that seems like a fair enough thing. I mean, here we have somebody, I've not talked to Dora, and I know you haven't had a chance to either. You know, she's obviously conducting some kind of a writing course for people who might be interested in writing fantasy. And surely it's not that challenging to come up with a general list of about 20 books that cover enough um, general ground to give somebody an idea. Now, you might say that doesn't sound useful, and that's probably legitimate, but I don't think that's that hard. You know, I mean, because, because I don't think that the, the, the angle that you're coming from, which is, well, if I want to write a Jonathan Carroll type book, should I read this, is actually the angle that it's coming from. I think the angle it's coming from is we have somebody who's decided for whatever reason they want to write fantasy. I need to give, I want to give them a broad spectrum of what a, the genre is and could be. So give me some foundational text to sketch that out, to sketch out the space. Which is a sort of thing that, uh, to me, makes more sense for somebody trying to study fantasy academically or trying to learn how to read fantasy than trying to learn how to write it. Because 
I could put I could put together two kinds of lists. One would be sort of the classic list, which would have uh, uh, obviously would have Tolkien, it would have Library, have Neil Gaiman, have all sorts of things on it. But I could put together another list that would say to a potential writer, these are the different strains of fantasy. These are classic works in. Uh, sword and sorcery. This is a classic work in epic fantasy. This is a classic work in historical fantasy, and so forth and so on. Um, but so, those would be two different lists. I'm not sure that I'm convinced about the two different lists. I'm not sure I'm convinced about the significance of the academic list at all. Uh, I kind of feel like that there's, there's a basic kind of 101 thing, and if you have a an academic coming in who wants to learn generally about fantasy, there's a 101 level fantasy kind of list you could propose and that very same list would pretty much serve the needs of someone who is trying to get an idea of the shape of the field of the shape of the genre uh before they attempt to write you know it's like you can sit there and i mean i think it's very easy to say for example you know on this sort of a list you're going to want to read tolkien's the lord of the rings you're going to want to read more mervyn peaks gormenghast you're going to want to read something from lovecraft's cthulhu mythos because those three bodies of work sketch out a lot of the shape of other things that come later, right? And also sketch out, here's epic fantasy, here's this kind of rejection of, of, of solace kind of fantasy, here's this cosmic horror, whatever else kind of area. Then you might say, well, there's lots of other areas, and you're right. And you come along and say, well, okay, you may also want to read, say, Paul Anderson's The Broken Sword, and if you read that, and if you read one of the Fritz Leiber uh, Faffer the Grey Mouser books, and if you read a Glenn Cook uh, Black Company book, you then have the shape of military fantasy and a whole lot of the rest of epic fantasy. You know, and then if you bring in, say, something like Carol's Land of Laughs, if you bring in something like Crowley's Little Big, if you bring in something like, I don't know, uh, maybe, maybe Ellen Kushner's Thomas the Rhymer, you begin to shape out a kind of literary fantasy with a fairy tale overlap, and you begin to sketch out the shape of what fantasy is in the modern era. I mean, there are other things which that, you know, that those groups don't touch on, you know, because, you know, you maybe you want to give some idea of urban fantasy as well and the various wars within that as to what it even is. So maybe you're going to bring in Megan Lindholm's Wizard of the Pigeons. I don't know how you particularly point towards the, you know, the, the sort of the modern version of paranormal normal romance that is Laurel K. Hamilton and whatever else, but there's, I'm sure there's a text there that would be appropriate. And that, you know, that's without even ch chucking in some general survey texts. I mean, for my money, any survey of fantasy is going to include a book like Gardner Dozois' Modern Classics of Fantasy, which gives you a lot of other territory. Uh, and, and my own prejudice as well would be to keep taking that step back to some foundational texts in this context. So, I mean, one of the reasons, for example, I think it's more useful to talk about reading Anderson and Cook and Liber because that will give you Abercrombie and Erickson and whoever else, you know, that kind of a thing. And you don't need a lot of examples of epic fantasy, though there are some you can bring in. Well, I think that's very close to the argument I was making about how you can select books that represent current ongoing traditions in fantasy. And, uh, and, and, and I think there's also a danger when you start thinking of fantasy as a genre, as a kind of tradition, to omit things that would seem fundamental if, uh, if, if you weren't looking at a genre. Would you include – I would include The Wizard of Oz, for example. It seems to me that has generated a whole 
subcategory of fantasy by itself. Um, and there are other books that are not normally thought of as fantasy, not normally thought of as genre fantasy that would include books by Mark Twain and Charles Dickens and all sorts of people that uh, may or may not have anything to do with the genre as it's defined. And there are books which traditionally were part of the history of fantasy that you really probably should have read or at least pretended to have read, like E.R. Edison. Um, and I'm sure that E.R. Edison, that you, you, can, you can trace a line of influence from Edison to even Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith and so forth and so on. I'm not sure anybody is writing in the E.R. Edison tradition these days. Yeah, I know. I, there's always that question that I have in my mind about you know the need to read the sort of books that showed up in Lynn Carter's uh, was it Sign of the Unicorn series or whatever it was? There was a, he did a series of classic fantasy novels. After, yeah, yeah, those. Uh, there's some great books in there, and there's m- value to be derived from reading them. But whether a 21st century individual trying to get a, a sense of the the field as we as we know it today needs to have read those things is another question i think you can deep dive too far particularly at a 101 level and i really i'm thinking that I, i've always taken i've taken dora's question as a what would you put into a fantasy 101 reading list that sometimes those foundational texts are best placed in a Fantasy 204, the, you know, the, the history of fantasy kind of course, rather than Fantasy 101, an introduction, if that makes sense. It makes sense. Uh, I mean, I, I, I thought about this when I was thinking about doing a series of lectures on, on fantasy, and turned out there was a lot of it I didn't want to read. But I would have started probably with the 19th century, because uh, there are writers who clearly in, are influencing young writers today. Uh, and, and George MacDonald is one of them. Some of the German romantics are, are, are probably not um, so much people like, um, oh, who am I thinking of? The Well at World's End. And the, 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 oh, and the, uh, Fl- uh, Fletcher. No, 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 not Fletcher. Pratt, Sprague de Camp and those guys? No, no, before that, no, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking William Morris is who I'm thinking oh, yeah. of. Uh, or, or even... Christina Rossetti. Oh, yeah. But you'll find, my point is, you'll find interesting modern fantasy writers who pick up very seriously on something like Christina Rossetti's Goblin Market or on something like uh, the imagery and the ideas of William Mor- Mor- Morris, if not his, his prose. So I don't, I, I think the best you can do with a list like this is to give people books that will want to make them do one of two things. Either I want to read more books like this. Or I don't ever want to read more books like this. <laughs> and, and, and if they if they try out, um, let's say, uh, William Morris, or if they try out Lovecraft and say I can't stand it, um, then maybe they will like Fritz Leiber. But the point is, people eventually have to evolve their own uh, preferences. Oh, of course they do. Own, their own history. Everybody has a personal history of fantasy. That, that, that very much so. And you know, everybody's going to go back and work their way through. Uh, it's just a matter of giving them goalposts, I guess, signposts. Maybe signposts is better. Um, okay, here's yeah. another question. If you're, if you're going to give them signposts, do you have to give them um, essentially something like trigger warnings? I mean, we were talking about how successful – this is a parenthesis. We'll get back to that. We were talking about how successful and inclusive um, – the Worldcon was this year. Apparently what happened at Necronomicon, at least off stage, was a confrontation between the old guard and the new guard in terms of how 
we deal with people like Lovecraft. So my question is, if you're going to mention some things that were once considered uh, reasonable fantasy, and there's the, 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 the business about Lovecraft's racism isn't just in his personal life. It's there in some of the fiction. It's there in the horror of Red Hook, for example. Uh, one of the books in, uh, you mentioned Lynn Carter's adult fantasy series for Valentine. One of them is a book by uh, uh, Ernest Brahma, who's, who's writing what they called oriental fiction in Kai Lung's Golden Hours, uh, which now, by modern standards, looks like a form of cultural appropriation. Um, do we read older fantasy even with the awareness that it may not match our sensibilities today? I would say we do. I think I'm, I'm torn on the whole subject of uh, trigger warnings. I think there's something to be said for for building a robust reader who can encounter ideas that they find unpleasant and not recoil from them, but also identify them, for, you know, recognize them for what they are. I mean, I think obviously there is value to be derived from re- reading Lovecraft, but you also, you know, can see that it's problematic and would understand that it's problematic, uh, the other work. Uh, I would say the same for, I mean, look, I mean, what do you say to someone about a book like Lord Fowlsbane by Stephen R. Donaldson, which was a runaway bestseller back in the what, late 1970s or whatever it was, or mid, yeah, late 1970s, and which, you know, didn't, I, I think it may have won a major award, I forget, but, you know, it, it kicks off with a rape, quite a violent rape is my recollection, and is quite unpleasant in that regard. And I think, you know, you could argue that some kind of trigger warning would be entirely appropriate for some of the audience. I, I guess, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't, I, I'm not, I don't have a clear answer for this one, Gary. I wish I did. No, it, you know? And trigger warning probably was the wrong term because uh, the, the, the example you gave of Thomas Covenant may be a trigger warning example. The ones I was referring to are books that are not going to necessarily emotionally upset somebody, but people might be aghast at the attitudes in them and at the appropriations that take place in them. Well, since you're teaching them, I think that probably you, you do put that in that context. I mean, I think Lovecraft is a fabulous example, of a fabulous modern example, because mm. now not only would you, I would think if I was teaching it, I think, I'd sit there and I would say, well, you know, here is, you know, sort of the call of Cthulhu and at the mountains of madness and whatever else. But also now look at, you know, these more modern reinterpretations and responses to it, which see the field talking back to those texts and filtering their views through you know, a more modern, more inclusive sort of worldview. And I think that's really a, an interesting, rich and robust thing to do. So I think there are ways of calling some of these texts out, I do. And I think there's value in it. There are ways of, uh, and one of the things, we've talked about this more than once on the podcast, with Lovecraft in particular, but there are probably other examples. Well, Kids Johnson's response to Kenneth Graham is, is coming out. Uh, yeah, I think next any week. day now, yeah. Any day now, the riverbank, uh, which is, and, and, and by most standards, there's nothing uh, overtly racist or classist or sexist outside of the fact that there are virtually no women in the wind and the willows. But... Modern writers reading these books, which and, and, and Kitch had a very good take on this. That, you know, these are these are stories, Lovecraft stories and the Kenneth Graham stories that she more or less fell in love with as a young reader, and then later realized, oh my God, I missed this part of it. Uh, and so now she's engaging in a dialogue with them, as is Matt Roth, as is Victor Laval, as are any number of uh, writers. And that's a healthy way of dealing with the past. You know, you you, you reclaim the parts that you like. 
and try to open it up to um, to new sensibilities. Yeah, I think that's true. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I, I think it's always going to be a challenge. I think we're always going to be reviewing what we've done and, and being aware of them. I mean, I guess the, the other question is like, do you attempt to cast things out of the field? You know, do you turn around and say that Lovecraft is now beyond the pale? I don't think that's necessarily useful. Uh, no. I think there's a value to be, to owning it. I mean, uh, there's a lot of conversation, both, I think, in the United States and here in Australia, outside the context of the field, about how you present historical events and how you present historical personages that allow you to both acknowledge any good they may have done in their lives and also that, you know, the, the negatives about them, and so that you had a clear, balanced historical picture. I think the same approach in the field is perfectly reasonable. You know, I do. No, and I, I, I'm not sure that this discussion leads us toward either recommending or excluding certain works from this hypothetical list you'd be talking about. Um, but it, it, it does suggest to me that we read things differently now than the way we used to, and, and we probably should. I mean, if, if we're at all paying attention to what's going on in our own culture, that is the active culture of readers of science fiction and fantasy in our case, then we should be changing our sensibilities. You know, we, um, no, I was not offended by Lovecraft when I was 12 years old. I mean, I, I was offended. I wasn't offended by his... Uh, anti-Semitism or his uh, his racism. I was offended by the fact that he he didn't treat these New England white families very well either. They were all horrible inbred monsters, as far as I can tell. So, in other words, he was pretty much uh, I uh, a, mis- a misanthropist as much as a misogynist. Um, I was watching a film. This is again a parenthesis, which is going to get back to the main thing. But I was watching the rerun on the Sci-Fi Channel of Stephen King's It, the miniseries from 1990, which they were entirely as one movie, and uh, obviously doing this to promote the new movie bit. And the thing that struck me as interesting about it was that this is a 1990 movie based on a, what, 1987 novel or something, set in mostly set in the 1950s. So this was a story about... Looking at the at the movie, we were seeing how the 1950s were remembered in 1990 by the makers of this film, and that's a completely different version of the 1950s as people who are old enough could remember it today. So there's the the, the point is your perspective on the past. Like one of one of the most haunting things in um, about Severian in Gene Wolfe's book of the New Sun is that he can remember not only what happened to him. When he was a child, but he can how he can remember exactly how he remembered it when he was twenty years old and thirty years old and so forth and so on. And my point about that, in terms of, of, of fantasy and science fiction, uh, and fantasy in particular, is that yeah, we remember it differently today than we did twenty years ago. I think that's fair. I do think that's fair. I would say as well, you know, with respect to this theoretical fantasy one hundred and one list, that you know, obviously, the way you would teach the list is a significant factor as well. You know, you would pick texts and then you would teach them in context, I would think. I mean, I'm not an academic and I've never taught anything, so I'm just... But that's what I would imagine you would do. Uh, so that... You, because you would be coming up with justification, in a sense, for the texts that you've come up with, you know? All of which are, I think, largely explicable to a, an interested individual. So, yeah. 
I mean, look, I think this 101 interesting. This 101 question is always interesting. I think it's interesting if, whether you're talking about fantasy or horror or science fiction or mystery or anything else. And I think you expect by the very nature of the world that that 101 listing is going to change and evolve over time as well. You know, I was struck by how many people were, were referencing very, very contemporary texts in the, you know, in this conversation, you know, stuff from the last, say, five years. And it would normally be my bias to switch away from something that contemporary when putting together a 101 type list. I think I like the idea of including texts that have perhaps stood the test of time a little bit before you start teaching them. It seems a little bit premature. But of course, you would know more about that because really isn't that to some degree what ICFA does? I mean, it, it, it discusses more contemporary works as they try and find out how they fit together into a picture of the, the actually, hidden actually, genre. Actually, to, honest, to some extent it does, but very few, very limited contemporary works. I mean, one of the things that's been, I think, an ongoing problem with the formal study of science fiction and fantasy is that it's very difficult for very many contemporary works to get through that barrier. Basically, people who teach it teach what they've been taught, and they were taught by people who were teaching what they've been taught and so forth and so on. There was a joke back in the 70s that, you know, half the articles being written about science fiction were written about Ursula Le Guin, Philip K. Dick, or uh, Stanislaw Lem. Uh, and, and now you probably could add Neil Gaiman and China Miegel to that list. Uh, and a few others, but still, it, it takes a while for that sort of thing to percolate into academia. Yes. And I, look, I'll be very curious to see what ultimately the list is that uh, Dora comes up with, and I, if, we get, if we get a chance, we may share it here, just so that readers can... Because we're not going to come up with our own list, obviously. No, we're not going to come up with our own list, and I can see... I can already see flaws in the list that you and I have already improvised, uh, and something that Dora would be aware of as well, is that we're talking almost entirely about Anglo-American texts. That's and true. based on what we said earlier about Worldcon and Dora mm. herself, oh, no. the hung Hungarian background, uh, knows perfectly well that there are a lot of European texts that are entering into it. So one of the one of the people I'd put on the list for anybody these days would probably be Kafka. Okay. Uh, simply because there are so many contemporary writers that are working out of a tradition that includes Kafka or, 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 or Borges um, or um, oh. Um, Garcia Marquez, mm -hmm. uh, probably the the Japanese traditions that would include Murakami and people like that would be part of something you'd need to look at these days. And, of course, all of their own folkloric traditions and all that kind of thing as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lots, so, lots to, th to think about in that sort of a space, Gary. Right. But you know, we'll see what Dora, Dora comes up with. So what else is happening in your world? Are you, are you reading books, Gary? I'm reading books. I read a book which I... Hope we can talk to the author about soon, um, which was, I think it's his most important book in many years, and that is John Crowley's Ka. The, can, can I be honest and tell you I've never been able to finish a book of his? Um, okay, I will. I, I'm, I'm not surprised in a sense because I found the uh, endless thing. I, I found I found the quartet challenging, but fascinating in a kind of labyrinthine way. All of his mainstream novels since then I've read and enjoyed thoroughly. And I thoroughly enjoyed Engine Summer. I couldn't finish Little Big. I'm in the minority. Little, I, 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 Little Big I read a long time ago, and I can't say that I, I, I... I certainly finished it. I can't say how I'd react to it today. I was very impressed by it. I think one of the problems he probably has is that he is... 
people are more likely to be impressed by him than to finish his books. And I think this is one of the things that happened with what I thought was a wonderful novel called Four Freedoms. It basically had no fantasy in it at all. But, but there, there, there is that sense of uh, admiration for what he does. There's a sense of myth, I mean, not mythology, but a sense of creating a myth in this novel about an immortal crow. I mean, essentially, it's the history of the last two or three thousand years of Western civilization seen through a crow, uh, through a crow's eyes. Uh, but the crow is narrating the story to the frame narrator who keeps telling us he's not very reliable. So there are all kinds of novelistic things wrapped around the story itself, but the story itself has the feel of legend. It, 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 it's, and it does take a while to get into the rhythm of it. And I think that may be part of the problem with, with writers like Crown, is that the prose is oceanic. It, 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 it drifts in long waves, and you have to kind of get used to that. Yeah. Well, yes, I, I think that's prob- probably true. Um, I, on the other hand, am reading uh, the latest book from Tom Holt. A.K.A. K.J. Parker. Is uh, this a K.J. Parker? No, this, this is... Sorry, I apologize for the zipping sound in the background. That's me taking the book out of my bag so that I can actually tell you the title of it correctly. It's The Management Style of the Supreme Beings by Tom Holt, which is a, a novel about basically repla- uh, God and Jesus Christ decide to sort of sell the family business and income a bunch of middle managers who re- realized, worked out a way to make some real money out of it. And it's quite engaging. You know, it's not so rocking it's, my world, but it's engaging. It's more or less in keeping with the kind of mythological comedies that appeared under the name Tom Holt before. Oh, yeah, very much. Uh, and I'm, I also have just started reading, because I'm, you know, reading a couple of books at the same time, the new Adam Roberts novel, uh, The Real Town Murders, which so far is terrific. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I'm not sure that I really pick up what Adam had suggested might be a less ambitious approach. So far, the book seems really, really good. Well, the other thing we should probably say something about um, since it's happened within the last week and, and, and certainly since the last podcast is one of the one of the absolute giants of the field passed away last week, Brian Aldous. Um, and I was thinking about him because I was writing two pieces, one which is actually already in the new issue of Locus. Um, and because he was a good friend for a long time. And you and I have talked about this before. He'd, he'd written interesting sort of classic science fiction on classic science fiction themes like Generation Starships and Nonstop or um, A World Without Children, which may or may not have influenced P.D. James's The Children of Men. That was a controversy for a while in Greybeard. And also wrote a kind of classic fantasy, um, which was not as widely read as it should have been, but one of the most difficult things you can write about, I think, and then I'm thinking about his book, The Malaysia, Malaysia Tapestry. I'm not sure yet how you pronounce that. Which is a novel about a world in which basically nothing ever happened. Um, and it, to, try to, to make that interesting is a challenge. But we were also, to, to be honest, acknowledging the fact that more people have stories about Brian, the legendary raconteur, the, uh, uh, the sort of wild man of conventions who would do unpredictable things, more than they were talking about his fiction. Um, and I'm not sure that outside of the, the tie-ins, the, there, was a, there was an edition of a collection of his short stories under the title of Super Toys Last All Summer Long because of the tie with AI. 
there was some interest in Frankenstein Unbound way back when it was made into a, the last feature film ever directed by Roger Corman. But by and large, the, what was supposed to have been his masterpiece, and which in many ways was his masterpiece, the Heliconia trilogy, uh, doesn't seem to be discussed much at all anymore. Well, actually, I was going to ask you, because, I mean, I have to say I'm more an aficionado of his nonfiction and anthology work than his actual fiction. Mm. Uh, what of his work do you think is going to uh, per, you know, per, you know, persevere? What, what do you think is going to actually hold up over time? Will it be nonstop, which appears to be the, uh, the classic on the surface of things? Will it be, in your opinion, Haliconia? Or will the work drift from view, do you think? It's difficult to say. I, I, I think the problem with Heliconia is it's, it's, a, it's a trilogy which is the entire history of a civilization over a couple of thousand years. And it, it didn't have the effect that other trilogies of that sort had, or other series like that. Uh, Heliconia is a planet which is as well thought out and as scientifically uh, disciplined as... Frank Herbert's Dune, for example. But people, I think, read Dune as a fantasy uh, to some extent. The science fiction was more like, increasingly in the background as the series went on, and increasingly more, more like magic. Uh, what Heliconia turned into was essentially a, a, a Victorian realist novel uh, with characters that were not even human, but that lived in seasons that went on for hundreds of years. So I don't think people could read Heliconia and say, oh, this is fun, this is fantasy, because it was it was too tightly constructed as a novel. And I think his failing, basically, late in life, was that he was a, a, a very good novelist whose science fiction gave less and less up to science fiction. When he was writing nonstop or Greybeard, or even when he was doing his early experimental things, like Report on Probability A and Brothers of the Head, which is just a bizarre, wonderfully imaginative book. Um, he was never, he, he was more committed to being a science fiction writer then. And later in life, he became more con committed to being a novelist. And so Heliconia, when you strip away the science fiction, looks like a British novel. It's a very heavy character-based, very elegantly written, very elegantly structured kind of thing. But it's not a good adventure. It's not a good series of adventures in the sense that... Um, that his early novels are. So yeah, my suspicion, my suspicion is that his early novels are going to be read uh, more than his later novels, and the last four or five novels, the ones I've not even read, like Finches and Mars, seem to have very little impact at all. What about something like uh, Trillion Year Spree? How do you see that standing up? I think Trillion Year Spree is going to stand up. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's an awkward um, and in some ways indefensible book in some of its conclusions. And, of course, the Trillion Year Spree section that was added on after the Billion Year Spree was revised was mostly David Wingrove's work with Wyand's oversight. But he, he set out a theory about the origins of science fiction, which essentially was a love letter to Mary Shelley. And he was absolutely passionately in love with Mary Shelley for all kinds of good reasons other than Frankenstein. And it's an argument. It's, it's it's an argument that is is still dominating histories of science fiction. There are people who say, of course, Frankenstein was not the first science fiction novel. But the fact that he raised the issue, uh, and he's 
he's put that claim at the center of that debate even now. And so you will find people like uh, John Crowley finding a science fiction novel in uh, medieval Germany, for example. You'll find uh, examples of early Chinese more or less science fiction. You'll find people arguing for, um, I don't know, Godwin or um, Kepler and so forth and so on. But I think he he laid out that debate well. The second thing he did well was he admitted, uh, he, he didn't admit because he's, he's doing this from a British perspective rather than an American perspective. His was the first history to say that essentially the pulp era, rather than being uh, a wonderful celebratory golden age, was an embarrassment. He thought Gernsback was an embarrassment to the field who had absolutely no literary sense at all. And this is partly another claim that he made, which I think has governed the debate ever since, which essentially is a debate between the American tradition of pulp science fiction versus the British tradition of um, the scientific romance. Uh, you know. and, and, and Brits, I've, I've talked to any number of uh, my English friends who will cheerfully point out to me that while, you know, while we were reading um, Doc Smith, or they were reading Olaf Stapleton. And that's a hard, from a literary point of view, that's a hard argument to win for the, for, for, for the Yanks. Yeah. Well, I mean, though you don't need to win it, it's just a different approach, Gary, surely. But I'm saying that I think that Aldous's trillionaire spree set the terms for the debate about the history of science fiction that is still going on. Yeah. Okay. Well, Vale Bryan, I mean, he will be, be sorely missed. We're coming to the end of our hour, even with our little uh, uh, sort of interruption. And I guess we'll probably even pop this out this weekend just so that everybody can actually get an excess of joy of of, of, the, of us and of, of Cood Streetness. But uh, what's coming up for you in the coming week or so? Are you sort of knuckling down to write, to, to write your next version of your column, is it? I mean, because... For those who don't know, and I realize this is sort of put airing some personal laundry a little bit, you you now have time on your hands, Gary. You're a man of leisure. I was going to – I actually was going to mention that earlier, and I thought it would be intemperate of me to do so. But we, we came back from Europe. Uh, you came back a week or two later than I did. You came back to your day job. I came back to realizing I don't have a day job anymore. I, I, I officially – turned in my keys and my laptop and can't get into my office anymore. I did this about a week ago. So I, I realized that uh, outside of deadlines and other things I should be doing, like reading manuscripts for the Illinois series, I don't have a timeline that I have to be on. I don't have to be up on Monday through Friday teaching classes or advising students or doing online things. So it does feel oddly adrift at the moment. Um, it's not as though I don't have things to do, but it's, with a sudden realization that you don't have to do this thing on Monday, it's very easy to translate that into, I don't have to do anything ever again. <laughs> so now all you have to do is work out what you want to do, right? Exactly, right. I mean, it's, it's, uh, the, the, the column, I mean, yeah, I could, I could see reviewing more and more and more and more books for Locus, uh, but I don't think that's what I want to do. I've got to couple of books that I promised people for years I'd write, and um, I may actually be putting together another collection of reviews uh, for Beckon Press. Brilliant. And probably doing more work with the Library of America as well, I would imagine. 
Well, the Library of America thing is it's, it's going to suddenly hit me uh, with a lot of annotations and things to do to the 1960s volume. But my latest information is that that volume probably won't be out till 2019. That's a while away. That's unfortunate. I would like to see it out sooner. He says selfishly. Uh, I would, yes. Um, but still, that that means you've got a, a framework of things. You know, there's, there's obviously the podcast, which is stumbling along at the moment, and you know, sort of enough enough other stuff to keep you perhaps enjoying your, your, your time. I think the podcast is uh, something that we will will re-energize now that we're both back into a rhythm. This has been an awkward. Uh, confusing summer for a lot of reasons, not the least of which, of course, is the entire uh, month of August essentially being spent en route to one place or another. Yeah, well, yes, I mean, obviously you two were in London and you and in Helsinki, and I was in London, Helsinki, Berlin, and Prague, and that did keep thing, make things interesting. I didn't see any science fiction people in Berlin, and I guess in retrospect, if I'd been feeling ambitious, I would have towed along all of the various hardware, and I could have recorded a podcast in the new uh, purple house of John and Judith Clute in, in London, had, had, had I been focused. And there's a few other friends of the podcast we saw that we could have podcast with, but who knows? And, you know, I don't know whether we're going to do anything from World Fantasy. My guess is probably not, but we shall see. Uh, uh, we'll see. I'm going to try to avoid getting over-programmed at that. Um, yeah. And um, we'll, we'll see how that works. But uh, between now and then, we can do some more things. I think those of, those of you who are hoping that we would have a spectacular all-star review with seven or eight guests, including Nobel Prize winners and, and <laughs> we're sorry, it's just us. This is we're, we're back. This is all it is. Yeah, sorry, sorry about that. We came back. On that cheery note, we shall wind up. I'm going to get on with my day, and you should get on with yours. It's been good talking to you. I will no doubt talk to you next week. Okay, we'll talk to you then. And until then, this has been in the fall of 2017, the Coot Street Podcast. Episode 312.